This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. We often hear people asking for leadership. Where are the climate leaders? And I've discovered that really you're more likely to find them at the local council level than at state and federal government, at least in Australia. So I went to the leadership, climate leadership conference in Sydney and the climate adaptation conference in Melbourne. I found a lot of frustration with councils who are facing things like coastal erosion, logging of forests, bushfires, heat waves, and congested cities. They really have to do the repair on those and they don't have enough money. So that was a big gripe. So I got quite a few of them into a room at lunchtime at one of the conferences and just passed the uh, recorder around and asked them to just describe where they were from. And really, we had people from Margaret River. We had people from Western Australia, from uh, northern New South Wales, Bellingen, and from Adelaide. And uh, out of all of those frustrated councillors, I found the ones at Adelaide had it most together. So later when I went to Port Augusta, I actually went to Adelaide to interview one of those people in more depth. Her name is Michelle English. And so there's an interview with her um, on today's program. And another person from South Australia called Nina Keith from the Council of Onka Paringa. Um, so those two from South Australia really are there with the creative ideas. They've worked with their communities and they're doing a lot of consultation so that they will be able to adapt. And South Australia is facing quite a huge decrease in its rainfall and uh, drying out of most of its uh, farming land. So they are on the front foot with it. So that's the uh, the group of councillors, then um, Michelle English and Nina Keith. And then to finish, we're going to hear from Mexico, Haley Eakin from Arizona State University, and she has become an expert on Mexico, planning the adaptation to climate change in Mexico. Now, I used to live in Mexico, and I love that city in all its colour and diversity, but it is a very highly populated city. There were over 20 million people when I was there years ago, and now there are many more, and there's always this kind of lid on the city of pollution because it's in a valley, it's in a kind of bowl, and the bowl is sinking as they drain out the what used to be marshes and lakes. That's all been drained out. And when they have floods, apparently it's extremely dire for many of the people in uh, shanty towns and poorer, you know, home homemade kind of buildings. Uh, so Heliacan really gives a wonderful picture of restoration of civic 
planning in Mexico City with climate change in mind. So they're not wasting so much money and uh, so many lives lost when they do have um, terrible weather events. So now let's go back to those councillors gathered together at lunchtime in a small room to tell me about the diversity of problems they face. And I think you'll be impressed by the integrity and far-sightedness of their answers. They really are feeling the duty of care. They are close up to ratepayers and they take it very seriously. I really loved what they said and I hope you do too. I'm at a conference in Sydney and I've gathered together some members of councils around the country who happen to have all come to the same conference and because we're all understanding that climate change is being dealt with probably more efficiently at the local government level, I'm interested to know what they're facing and uh, what, what are the challenges to make the kind of climate action you feel we need. So could you just introduce yourself and say where you come from? I'm Greg Clancy, I'm an ecologist. Um, I was elected to Clarence Valley Council, which is based in Grafton and McLean area. Some people, that's north of Coffs Harbour, people seem to know Coffs Harbour. Yeah. I'm the Green, um, Green Councillor, I'm the only Greens Councillor um, in a very conservative area, so the challenges are great. Um, but despite that, um, there have been some achievements. Um, often the staff are working away. We have a Climate, uh, a community climate change committee, um, which uh, is dealing with a lot of the important issues about climate change, but also other environmental issues. Mm. But getting the motions from that committee through to council—that's that, the challenge. Um, so there are some good things happening, but we are a very uh, conservative area, so there's a lot of work to be done. We, the predictions are that um, our area will have more rainfall but uh, also more severe storms. Um, McLean, which is um, a major town in in our area, um, just suffered a devastated storm uh, a month ago. Mm. Massive damage, uh, the showground, the the, um, hotel in the main street. So, you know, we've got those sort of challenges where an area that's traditionally been um, very big on native forest logging, so with deforestation, um, there's been plantations put in, but most of them are now dead because they weren't done properly. Yeah. They weren't done in an ecological way. They were just done for tax avoidance or whatever. Well, this raises something you said to the conference about exotic species. You know, when you're losing biodiversity, even though you're putting, you're greening a place, but you're not greening it in the right way. Tell us about that. Yes, I'm very passionate about that because I think there's a lot of good intention out there and often it's misguided because people put the wrong plants in. They may put a North Queensland plant in northern New South Wales, but it's bad because it's just as exotic as what what something from Europe is. Mm. People don't seem to understand that. But also if you put the right species in, but you're getting the uh, plants from out of the area, then the genetics can be different. And what we've found is that often plants that you thought were one species have turned out to be three species. And so if you're planting spotted gums from Sydney on the north coast, which has happened, Mm. the spotted gum has now been split into three species in New South Wales. And the ones from Sydney planted up there are actually now exotic. They're not the appropriate ones. And if what's the problem? Well, it's the genetics, because if they start hybridising, you're getting all these... Uh, problems with the natural, you know, protecting the natural gene pool and the natural ecosystem. Mm. North Queensland kadaji trees have been planted all around the Clarence. 
they're related to the spotted gums and they're now hybridising with our beautiful large leaf spotted gum. So I'm passionate about local native plants and not only because of those genetic issues and ecological issues but also from a practical point of view that a lot the the local native plants have adapted to the conditions. Mm. They require less water, they require less resources to go into them. Mm. And at a time where we, we should be saving water and, and, and not spending so much uh, effort on, on plants that are not meant to be in the area, I think it's an opportunity lost. I think a lot of towns and cities could do a lot better if they look for their local plants. And there are there's hundreds or thousands of species of local plants that could be used and people just don't know about them so a lot of it's not out of intent a lot of it is just ignorance people don't know that just down the road in that patch of bush there's you know all these species that they could actually plant in their garden yeah i bet the flying foxes and the birds and the insects would love it if the councils and the locals would get back to the old whatever we had before and also climate change would perhaps be more easily endured well that's the, the situation with uh, the natural ecosystem so some people some scientists want to start manipulating and moving this here and moving that there well my view is no that's not the way you do it you look after your natural ecosystems and part of that can be that you're planting local native things within your cities and towns so that that has less impact on the natural areas and the more intact the natural areas are the, the more they're going to be able to cope with the um, changes that are happening. There will be change, and but nature's, nature can adapt, providing we, we leave those areas in as natural state as possible. Fantastic. Thank you. OK, we've got another councillor here. Can you tell me... Oh, uh, two together from the same council. <laughs> OK. And they're both very... Um, I don't say, passionate probably is an overused word, but you know you both seem very, very sure of what you're seeing and how distressing it is for you. So let's start with you. So I'm Danielle Wheeler. I'm the Greens councillor on Hawkesbury Council, uh, which is um, on the peri-urban fringe of Sydney in the northwest of Sydney. Um, I'm Amanda Cotlash. I'm the Labor councillor on Hawkesbury City Council. Um, and um, I guess uh, Hawkesbury is in, a, is in an interesting position because we're right on the, um, the border of the Northwest Growth Centre and that's, that's you know, mm. having... It's, it's on its way. It's, yes. Well, yeah. you mentioned these big developments of houses and Victorian yeah. listeners will know that too because it's popping up all over Victoria, these great big incrustations of houses with, as you said, black roofs and no trees and I don't know if they've got any shops or post offices in there. It just looks like no services either. They're getting better at designing for services. Unfortunately the services always come after the people so what we see when these developments come in is that areas that are already under-resourced for public transport, schools, that sort of infrastructure um, are are really running behind when when the um, when the influx of people come and then we put the roads back together. We've got schools in, in um, northwestern Sydney that were built two years ago and they're already beyond capacity and those suburbs aren't even full yet. Mm. This just keeps on going. And so when you can't provide... We've got a, a, a state government that's failing to provide the most basic of services. They're certainly not concentrating on, on transitioning to anything else. Mm. And, and we're building and designing and selling houses that that rely on high quality cheap power and that's 
that's not sustainable. We have houses that are only livable because you can turn on an air mm. conditioner. They have black roofs, they have black tiled roofs, they're brick veneer, they have west-facing windows, no double glazing, no mm. verandas, no shade, nowhere mm. to plant shade, acres and acres of hard surfacing. The only climate mitigation possible in this situation is turning on an air conditioner. Mm. It's, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And... and Housing affordability is a massive problem. You know, people can barely afford to buy these houses. Then they have to travel for. We're an hour and a half apart from the CBD, so people and people are commuting for three hours a day. Mm. Public transport's poor, mm. so they're funding that cost mm. as well. And then they're funding these increasing power bills. We, it's, a, it's a ticking time bomb, I think, for Western Sydney. Well, the time bomb is climate change, which adds another layer Absolutely. to everything. And I got it, picked up a very strong feeling from all of the people I've invited to speak today that there's a real duty of care. And when it co- I mean, maybe people in federal and state government don't really have to eyeball the customers, but the councils mm. do. Yes. And you do have people who complain straight away to you if there's a problem. So you have a duty of care to them. They expect it. Um, what, what kind of policies or what are you doing about the climate changed future that we are actually facing? I think it's really difficult. <laughs> well, we're, we're really struggling to prior, prioritise what we're doing. And I guess that's why we're, we're at this conference, because any, any guidance in how, how to, you know, to make those next steps. I think, though, having said that, I think we know what to do. I think our biggest problem is raising the finances mm-hmm. to do that. And we don't... I, I suppose council is, is a bit behind um, the eight ball in the fact that I don't think we've really come to terms with um, public-private partnerships, and I think that's something that we'll have to, to look at. Yeah. We're also, in the, Sorry. we're also in the happy position of only discovering that climate change was a thing in 2016 <laughs> when, we re-elect, when we elected a progressive <laughs> council. So, that's, um, right. so yes. that's allowed us... You know, that's allowed Hawkesbury Council to keep its head Absolutely. firmly in the sand. Um, and so we've got a lot of catching up to do, yeah. and, and that's, the, that's the real tragedy, yeah. I think, yeah. here. The, the other big problem for councils in, in metropolitan New South Wales is that we've now had the state government take away a lot of our planning powers. So where councillors could look at a development right. and say, look, this isn't viable for the people who are going to have to live in it and the people who have to live around it, because you know, particularly with urban heat, it's not just the people living in the building, the people surrounding that area. We're, we're already up to 47 degrees in summer. We've had, we had five days of above 40 um, um, this summer, that we've had record heat events. Mm. Um, so, and we're, and then we're struggling to put in services so that people who can't afford to sit at home in the air conditioning have got somewhere to go. So we're keeping the library open longer, we're keeping the pool open longer, and all of these are costs that council meets out of some, yeah. you know, rubbery budget that <laughs> you know, that I'm not sure you know, how we how we manage. But it's. You know, we feel like we have to take responsibility for mm. these things because we are, you're right, we are the level of government yeah. that's at the coalface. Yeah. I've never spoken to a nurse or a doctor or a, a fireman or a state emergency worker who doesn't believe in climate change and isn't feeling the effects in the emergency departments, And well, as you say. As a registered nurse, I can say that during the heatwave in um, Melbourne, yes, I was teaching paramedics at the time in Sydney and I always used to teach them about this, um, that every 19 minutes... 
there was a cardiac arrest for which an ambulance was called in Melbourne during that um, those really strong um, heat waves. I think it was about three or four years ago now. <laughs> the emergency services cannot cope. And I just wonder in Sydney, well, and perhaps in country areas, in Sydney our roads are at gridlock. Yes. How are the ambulances even going to get through the city traffic to reach people if there is an ambulance? We've got to upskill all our residents to do CPR and to resuscitate. And um, we're not going to manage. If, if our cities are going to be double the population, if it was every 19 minutes there was cardiac arrest mm. in Melbourne, think of that every 10 minutes mm. with a doubling population or even more, extrapolate that further, because it's going to be, um, it's going to be hotter. Mm -hmm. so can I, can I, yes, you see, listeners, these people really are thinking about it. Yeah, and, and it's the babies and the old people and those with um, respiratory disease yeah. who are particularly at risk. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, and we're talking today about councils and what they can do about climate change, adapting to it, and preventing the worst of it. Okay, now we've got someone from Bellingen Council who spoke up. Are you the mayor? Yeah, I'm the Bellingen mayor, I am, yeah. Uh, and um, look, uh, I think... Explain where Bellingen is. Bellingen's on the mid-north coast. Um, we're just a little bit below Coffs Harbour, one of the most amazing shires in the world. Mm. Um, but we, we have a different issue around our shire in terms of um, there's about 54% of our shire is, is, um, has national park or, or um, state forest. Um, and doesn't matter what we do in our council in terms of our carbon footprint it's the impact of what's going on particularly in our forests now which they are logging now even more intensely than they ever have um, they're after the last big trees um, and the impacts that that has on our waterways and all that stuff even outside of climate change and, and on biodiversity in general which is really really struggling um, is immense um, but what what the like, what state government is doing is they're not recognizing that that land there can never be rated um, that, that the logging trucks are using our roads they are damaging our waterways by their, their, their industrial practices um, and they're cutting down and releasing um, you know, massive amounts of carbon um, out of those forests for very little return and we have no say in what they're doing and they've just about to sign uh, this is Australia wide is a regional forestry agreement for the next 20 years yeah. now we weren't even invited to go to the stakeholder meeting until someone said, are you guys going to the stakeholder meeting? And we said, we haven't, we haven't been asked. So 54% of the shire that we operate in is, is you know, 40% of that's in forest, and we weren't even um, told about it. So I think... This morning we heard a scientist telling us about carbon sinks. Why isn't that actually now a, a thing in law that you are in charge charge, your, your shire is in charge of a very important carbon sink. Yeah, and what I've got out of this conference actually is there's two things that the business community is interested in it when we talk about loss or profit um, when it comes down to ethical behaviour no one's interested in it and what who should well actually people are interested I shouldn't say no one there's people that are interested in it and local governments certainly are interested in it because we are close to our to our community but federal and state government uh, are doing nothing and, and they are they are countering anything that they do on the positive side. Um, you know, we we heard um, state governments from Victoria and New South Wales talking about, and the federal government talking about the things that they are doing. They're countering that by their their terrible land clearing laws, and they're doing it by still continually logging out our forests. So, um, it's you know it, it's a it's an ongoing problem for us that once again. We are carrying the can for state and federal um, government on, a, on, a, on an absolute huge issue, a huge issue that's going to impact 
the whole of this country and the whole of the globe. Yeah, we heard from Adelaide Council yesterday about, uh, I think, that 1% of the rates that goes to Adelaide Council is into a special fund for climate action. Is that what everyone heard? Something like that. It sounds like a small amount, but they said it was a still a kitty. What are you going to do about it? I mean, you're going to fight back, it sounds like. Well, look, I mean, the big picture is 0.6% of, of uh, you know, taxable income goes back to the federal government to, to, to councils. 0.6 goes back to the communities that everyone lives in. So that's, that's the first measure that needs to be changed because actually one of the things that, 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 that I've learned is that local government do better than any other form of government in terms of saving money and looking at the, solution, the, the solutions in the local areas. And if we had the money that they have, which they are wasting on carbon, carbon farming initiatives where they're going out to marginal country and trying to plant a million gum trees, instead of doing that, going into our biodiverse forests and protecting them for our endangered species like the koala and the quolls and our powerful owl, if they gave us the money to manage that, produce local jobs, we'd be much better off in terms of our carbon, our economy and the well-being of our people in the Shire. So we need to be given the budget, not, not always be you know, drip-fed a little bit of money and expected to do the lot. And that's, you know, that's the most frustrating thing about being uh, a councillor and a mayor in local government in this country yeah. is there's lack of recognition for the amount of stuff that we do. Well, there was an article in the paper called La La Land Management last year and I thought that was very good about the Emissions Reduction Fund and how it was being paid to private landowners, I think, to give a 20-year contract not to clear something that they might never have been going to clear anyway, but it was over a billion dollars had been spent on those schemes. Is that... Do you any of you have an experience of that? Because I didn't know if that was true. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, those, those uh, offset areas are just appalling. We had one down in our way. Um, where they go to mine and uh, remove a threatened species and they offset it with land that was totally unrelated and, and inappropriate. But in respect of New South Wales forestry, I've looked at their accounts and they forest, they log native forests at a loss. So, you know, it's not even profit-driven, it's just politically driven. We've got another person from another council who's come in. I'm, this is like a little round table in a tiny room <laughs> of people from councils around Australia because I think if you're living in Melbourne you don't know the breadth of places that are covered by councils and they're obviously dealing with some tough problems. What's your name? Yeah, and my what? Name's John Levitt. I'm from Shoalhaven City Council yeah. and uh, our, our issues are generally what I'm hearing echoed in the, in the room that underfunded and uh, overburdened with responsibility. Our, our coastline's 120 kilometres long it's a very narrow, long Shoalhaven uh, area, uh, local government area, and we're responsible for the maintenance of that. The Commonwealth government's totally abandoned the space. They, they do not take responsibility for the coastline of Australia, which strikes me as being insane from a number of points of view. A, we're not funded to look after it as it should be, and B, it's a national responsibility. So they foisted it onto the state governments and then the state governments just push it our way. For instance, we had quite a bit of damage, particularly around an area called Kurrawong in the East Coast Low storms of 2016. A lot of damage and we have to fund it out of money raised in the Shoalhaven. That, that, because we're fortunate to be looking after such a beautiful area, but in a way unfortunate, that we've got the responsibility without Commonwealth help to maintain it. And it's really a national asset. 
know but, it, show, it shows what will happen when we get these effects of climate change. It'll be exactly the same. You know, I know that when these bridges get washed out at my, yeah, uh, uh, in my shire, they won't be coming to, to you know, State Parliament and they won't be going to Canberra. They'll be coming down to the Bellingham Shire Council going, when are you going to fix that bridge? And, you know, that might be the impact of, you know, climate change and, and you know, our... our um, you know, federal government supporting ridiculous things like the Adani coal mine to, to give us no chance, if that gets ahead, to get, to get our emissions down. Um, but also logging our forests, lo- logging our carbon sinks, you know, and then so the impact on our system is going to be big. And, I, and it's totally right. I mean, you know, John, John is on the button in terms of, you know, they are walking away from their responsibility. And I know, I know that our funding for them is going to disappear and we need to be really resilient in terms of, our, of we are. And that's why we're all here. And that's why we're all speaking out because, you know, we've had enough yeah. uh, and I'll, we'll continue to do that. Yeah, and I've interviewed people, for example, in Fiji, you know, a Hurricane Winston, I think it's 18 months ago, they're still living in tents and the money has run out to put new bridges and new... You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show And we're talking today about councils and what they can do about climate change, adapting to it and preventing the worst of it. And when they do dribble us a bit of money, so at the moment the Western Sydney councils are are, um, trying to set up a city deal with both the state and federal government, and that's a significant amount of money from the federal government. But unfortunately with the city deal for Western Sydney, it's all predicated on the Western Sydney airport, which again will be miles and miles of tarmac with mm. with roads, no public public transport is on the never never for that plan. There isn't even a fuel line to fill up the planes. It's very much like it will be a freight airport. We'll have no curfew, so people in Western Sydney who already have some of the worst health outcomes um, in New South Wales, who are who already have the worst air quality in New South Wales, will be sitting under the the flight path for this monstrosity. And we're supposed to be grateful. You know, we're, we're sold this idea that it's going to give jobs to Western Sydney. We're supposed to be happy about this. And that's the dilemma that, that areas like Western Sydney, already struggling with massive urban heat problems, uh, poor health, low socioeconomic standing and a lack of resources... I almost wish we had a coast to a road because at least if your swimming pool washes into the beach, as we saw um, at Collaroy, that's a bit sexy. Like, the news cares. <laughs> no one cares that people are dying in their houses from heat events mm. in Western Sydney. No one cares. We've just become the dumping ground for urban sprawl. Oh. And it's devastating. And the other thing that we're not recognising mm. is that we're losing, with every house that's built, we're losing arable land. And I'm not... A part of the idea of the Western Sydney Airport is that we will be able to export food from Western Sydney. Well, I'm not sure where that food is going to come from because you won't be growing it where we are. So you'll have to grow that. I mean, you might grow some in the Hawkesbury because we're blessed with a floodplain. That means you can't put too many houses on it. But I don't know where they think the rest of that food's going to come from. Clearly all from the Central West where there isn't enough water and there isn't enough um, fertile soil. Okay, so... Great frustration about lack of planning and lack of trickling. I don't think it should be trickling down of funds. It should be yeah. a massive um, waterfall of funds. Anyway, who'd like to have the last word? Yeah, well, look, there's a few issues that have been raised. And one is this heat issue with, with people, and that is a real issue. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But it's also we're, we're losing large numbers, thousands of flying foxes mm-hmm. every time we get a heat wave. Mm-hmm. So that's another issue. And the flying foxes are critical to the continuation of our forests. They pollinate the forests. They're not just fruit bats, they're, no. they're basically nectar bats, but nectar and pollen. 
So and the other problem we have, the frustration we have, is that we've, the state government has now brought in this fit for the future, mm. which puts a lot of pressure on councils. Mm. We were not fit for the future. We have to put up our special. We have to put up our rates. We've got special rate variation that's made us very popular with the population, and and some of the people say they can't afford it. And um, so we we're really not getting the financial support. Although there's a lot of money being thrown at infrastructure in New South Wales at the moment. We're getting a highway, we're getting a new jail, we're getting new bridges. <laughs> Everything's happening in our area. But once all that stops, mm-hmm. um, the jobs that are there will be gone. Mm-hmm. We'll have all the damage to the environment that's been caused by the freeway. They picked the worst route they could have picked. I fought it for years to try to get them to use another option, which they did have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it's sort of a, it's a double-edged sword. We're getting a lot of money thrown at us at the moment, but it's not going to really help our area greatly. Okay, well, thank you very much. So this has been a small glimpse of some councillors from around the country who are dealing with the 2018 problems. Let's just add climate change to that, and I'm sure they'll cope. Marika and Shane Howard singing Spirit of Place, which I recorded at a great concert that they gave for the Great Forest National Park, I think. Now we're going to hear from Michelle English in Adelaide Council. Michelle English is the City of Adelaide's Associate Director of Sustainability. I met her at a climate leadership forum in Sydney where I had the impression that many councils around the country are feeling a bit frustrated about climate action. By contrast, Adelaide has the crazy ambition to be the world's first carbon neutral city. And I think things are booming here, just looking around. There seem to be lots of green shoots. So welcome, Michelle. Is it a crazy ambition to be the world's first carbon neutral city? Well, it's lovely to um, be talking to you today. And look, it certainly is a um, a very ambitious target, uh, but it's one that, um, you know, the City of Adelaide and, in fact, 
all cities around the world um, need to be aspiring to if we're going to reach the agreement uh, that was made in Paris, so the Paris Agreement. So I, I suppose the really important thing that we have uh, in South Australia is that we really have um, understood that this is not just something for governments alone. It, it's really something that um, our community, our businesses and our industries have all really um, accepted and are taking action. So the Carbon Neutral Adelaide Initiative uh, you know, originated in the lead-up to Paris uh, between um, the state government and um, the Adelaide City Council. But like the Paris Agreement, it's not, it wasn't uh, just about governments. It was out about taking um, action collaboratively with other sectors of society. So um, since that, that original idea... Uh, we really have had, I think, in you know the first six months of our partners program, we've now got over um, 140 partners, and they span um, from not to, not for profits through to small, medium, and large businesses at the university sector. So it really is recognising that we are all acting together, and it's by us all acting together that we're going to make a difference. That's right. Well, I read your council report and found that you spent. $148,000 on incentives uh, towards sustainability, and I'm sure ratepayers would prick up their ears and say, oh, incentives, yes, that sounds good to me. But the thing that's really interesting, that this money leveraged over a million dollars worth of projects. Tell us how that worked. Um, well, that's a, that's a really good example, actually. So our approach is by leading by example ourselves, but also supporting our community to take action. And the sustainability incentive scheme is one of the ways that we're doing that. So you probably read an, an older report there because um, we've actually, um, in the... I guess two and a half years uh, from uh, the middle of 2015 through to the end of 2017, we actually provided rebates um, of just over half a million dollars, um, and that supported nearly four and a half million dollars of investment uh, in sustainable community, in sustainable technologies by our community. So, um, what's really important is that half a million dollars was actually a contribution, um, half by the state government and half by the city of Adelaide. So, for our ratepayers, you know, every fifty cents mm. that we spent on an incentive actually leveraged nearly eight dollars fifty of investment in the city, and we've seen really significant uptake in particular uh, around things like um, solar PV on our large you know, commercial buildings and our residences. But really importantly, what this incentive scheme um, has done is it started that early adoption of other technologies, in particular energy storage. It was the first um, scheme to provide rebates for energy storage in Australia mm -hmm. uh, and also electric vehicle charging points. Right. All right. And I imagine a lot of small businesses and workers are thanking you for that because that leveraging means more jobs. Oh, absolutely. So you'll see a lot of our partners through um, Carbon Neutral Adelaide are, are people who are actually taking advantage of that transition that we're seeing to a low-carbon economy. And they're not just businesses in South Australia serving South Australians or Adelaideans, mm -hmm. but they're now national businesses uh, and they've moved into other, you know, other states and um, are really thriving. Okay, listen up other states, because Adelaide is a small city compared to Melbourne and Sydney, but they're starting to do it here, and that feeling of harmony and uh, excitement is really in the air. 
Look, low-income residents and people renting usually can't get solar PV. And I think you've got a trial where a wide number of people are benefiting. Can you extend that to all the people who, who are in that category? So I think what you're talking about is our Solar Savers Adelaide scheme. Um, And and this is really a scheme that um, we looked at, you know, what are other cities around Australia doing? And Darabin City Council has done some wonderful things for a long time. Um, And we took what they were doing and we expanded it. So this scheme actually um, is uh, providing solar PV to low-income households and to also rental properties. So that's the difference to Darabin. Because we could see that... These were the the types of properties that couldn't access our incentives because the barrier to them was that upfront cost mm-hmm. uh, of of the, you know that capital cost of putting that solar in. So um, our first stage of this was with forty properties in our um, city council, mm-hmm. and what it is is we've gone out and done a bulk. Uh, purchase of solar PVs. Um, Call or Cozy, a South Australian company who also own Tindos um, solar panels, so an Australian-made solar panels, um, won the tender. And um, basically they've installed solar on those 40 properties and um, the properties also get a rebate, which they would have under in the incentive scheme, and the remaining amount is basically paid back over 10 years uh, so that those people are uh, accessing the savings before they have to pay back for the system. Okay. Well, look, sustainability is uh, a buzzword, and I don't really know what it means anymore, but given that Paul Hawken at the Sustainable Living Festival was talking about we have to go beyond sustainability, we have to draw down carbon, and we have to limit climate change. So can you tell us how... Your schemes, you know, these incentives and voluntary schemes and these partnerships could eventually get you to zero carbon. I mean, is it just wishful thinking or how, how is it? How do you see it panning out? Look, it certainly is a significant ambition. You know, it's one we don't take lightly, uh, but it, it's also that we need to have cities um, taking this action. So we see our role as a city council doing a number of things. So one, we lead by example. So we have been um, reducing emissions in our own operations for you know several decades now. Uh, and our last two inventories, we um, we saw a, a, a decrease of of ten percent mm-hmm. over the, over just one year. So we're taking action. We have. You know, our community and our businesses taking action and we're supporting those who need that support to take action as well. But it, it is a significant ambition. Um, our community um, over the last 10 years, so our baseline is 2007 to 2017, we actually have decoupled. Uh, so we have seen a 15% reduction in our emissions over that 10-year um, period. We still have a long way to go, obviously. Yeah. What about us. public transport? I think in Melbourne they're going to put the trams on renewable energy because it's already electrified. You have one sort of tram track here. Uh, is there a plan to, you know, um, decarbonise the public transport? Uh, so um, certainly um, that has been a really significant area of focus. Mm-hmm. So the state government have uh, have been going through a process of electrifying um, our tra- 
train lines. So we've got train lines. We don't have quite the same network of trams as, as Melbourne. They're very lucky with their trams. But we do have... Um, uh, a tram into the city and and um, city council and also state government have mm-hmm. been looking at expanding that network network as well. We're really quite lucky in terms of um, our grid, our electricity grid in South Australia. In that, uh, in just last year, almost fifty percent of that grid was actually supplied by renewables. Mm-hmm. So, um, in addition to that, um, I also know that the state government. Um, has looked at its own um, electricity um, purchasing and is looking um, and has contracts for renewable energy as well. So absolutely those sorts of policies you know, support um, a green grid for our public transport. OK, just to finish, Michelle, we're talking to Michelle English um, at the Adelaide City Council where she's the Assistant Associate uh, Director of Sustainability. Just, Michelle, just reflect on what's your... Um, how do you enjoy this work? Is it, is it a good experience for you? I mean, you must collaborate with an awful lot of people. Oh, look, we do. And, you know, I guess the most important thing is we have a wonderful Lord Mayor, um, Lord Mayor Martin Hazy, and we have a wonderfully supportive um, body of elected members. We couldn't do this work if we didn't have um, that sort of leadership from um, from our elected members. Um, I also have an incredibly supportive and passionate team um, that work with me, and I couldn't do this without them. Um, but as we've touched on through this, um, what's really exciting uh, is that it's not just state government and it's not just city council, it's actually our whole community um, you know, acting together. It's businesses that are making a place for them, not just uh, in South Australia or Australia, but internationally. Mm-hmm. So it's about looking at the opportunities that this presents for us um, as an economic um, driver for our city. Well, it sounds like even if the state government changes or the federal government changes or policies change, you're going to be pursuing this anyway. That sounds really so strong. Oh, look... um, you know, I've you know we've just had a recent um, election, and and um, you know it's really exciting when um, your new government comes in, and they're also um, you know really supportive of um, renewable energy. Uh, they had a pre-election commitment about energy storage, and I think that really just shows that. Um, action is already taking place yeah. um, it's happening um, and that um, it's you know it's really strongly supported by our community so we will continue to work on thank you very much that was michelle english in adelaide you're listening to radio 3cr this is the beyond zero emissions community show our next speaker is nina keith from Onkaparinka Shire in South Australia. First off, where is the city of Onkaparinka and how are you affected there by climate change? city of Onkaparinka is a large uh, peri-urban council on the outskirts of Adelaide. It's about an hour south of Adelaide. We're at the very tip of the Flurio Peninsula. It's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, and climate change? So climate change impacts... Um, we're seeing, you know, a, a drying and... Um, warming climate so less rain overall but when it does rain we're getting um, more extreme rainfall events um, more storm surges and coastal erosion um, sea level rise obviously um, heat waves 
um, changes to the growing season. So because we have quite a lot of agriculture in the area, our winemakers have really been noticing that uh, they're having to harvest a lot earlier um, and their growing season has shortened. And so they're really having to look at... um, new varietals that they can plant and so bringing in a lot of Italian varieties and, and different different things yeah. like that. Mm. Yes, this is an adaptation conference so listeners you'll realise the emphasis is on that. Well look, I was in Adelaide on Anzac Day and despite the autumn leaves falling, it was hot and the TV news that night gave two seconds to a climate scientist and the interviews then were mostly on a woman in a swimming pool saying oh, she just loves swimming at this time of year and how extraordinary it was to have such nice weather and I wonder, is it still hard to talk to people about climate change head on? Interestingly, late last year, um, Sidivon Kapringa surveyed our community about their attitudes, knowledge and behaviours around climate change and so we have a demographically selected group of residents that agree to do surveys for us every year and normally if we get about 100 or 200 people responding, that's a really great response, we're happy. When when we released the survey, the lady who um, puts them out came running over to my desk and said, what the hell have you done? This is just going crazy. People just couldn't get enough of this survey. They really want to talk about climate change. We ended up with well over 600 respondents and the results were fascinating so um, you know lots of other surveys have shown the same kind of finding that there's still a good portion of people in the community who aren't convinced that climate change is human induced and people get very caught up on Mm. that you know wanting to convince people that it is but what our survey um, found was that regardless of people's belief um, about the cause Over 80% of our residents say that they have personally experienced the effects of climate change Mm. in our region. And that was really interesting for me because, you know, I know that the climate is changing. I didn't know that your general community members would be ascribing those changes to climate change. So that was one really interesting um, lesson from it. The other was that, you know, the vast majority want our council to take action on climate change. And, that you know, people were... There was 22 questions, quite a long survey. It was just filled with comments and, um, you know, a lot in the nature of I have so much to offer, these are the things that I can do. A lot of conversation around that that stuff. Um, Also a lot of despair and a feeling that... um, there was an action being taken and I really understand how people would get that view because the the media, as you just articulated, doesn't give it a lot of profile and when they do it's that the federal government's not taking any action. But so the thing we really took away from those results is that um, we need to start sharing what we're doing because we are doing a lot within local government and right across South Australia there's, there's amazing action being taken at the state and the local level and people didn't know so in the survey no nobody knew what council was doing yes. <laughs> um so that prompted us to roll out um well, tell whole... us now i heard that you did something called um a hypothetical on heat waves can you just tell us about specific things sure so um this was a an event that we held in february um it was called feeling hot 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 <laughs> uh, dealing with heat waves in southern adelaide and we we're fortunate in South Australia where um, each region um, has been broken into about sort of four or five councils who all about 
about six years ago, got together and developed these regional climate change adaptation plans. So every region in South Australia has a plan for how we are going to respond to climate change. And then each council has um, its own individual action plan. And so we work really closely with four other councils mm-hmm. in Southern Adelaide. And it's a wonderful partnership. And we do a lot of work together. So this event was part of the Resilient South. And um, so, so how it worked was we, we got an amazing panel of... Um, Experts, so the head of the Bureau of Meteorology in South Australia, the head of the SES, um, a chairwoman from the Red Cross, someone from our um, the Hutt Street Homelessness Centre, a whole range of people, people from council, um, all of the people who need to respond when there's a heat wave. And then we had um, Amanda Blair, who's a local sort of media identity and, yeah. uh, comedian, and she took them through this three-week hypothetical heat wave, and. We worked with the Bureau to make sure that the temperatures were going to be accurate. It was set in 2025. Yeah. And it just got worse and worse. And, and the poor panel got completely bombed with disaster after disaster. But it was a great opportunity for them to talk about all of the work that they're doing and, and the ways in which they're working so well together as a, a really amazing network of organisations. But it got worse and worse. Finally finished in week three and um, the heat wave then precipitated... Um, storms, flooding, bushfires. So, you know, all of the emergency services personnel are completely exhausted and they're having to deal with with even more. And so the, um, the um, facilitator, when we were preparing, she's, and we were going to do a, a time for reflections, and, yeah. and she said, I hope you don't mind me swearing, but she said, you have to say, we're fucked in the PowerPoint. That was going to be her reflection. And I remember sitting there preparing the PowerPoint thinking, I don't think that this is part of uh, corporate standards, but I'm going to do it anyway. And my director was in the audience. Um, so, you know, we, we took them to the brink of despair, basically. Yeah. You know, this, we are. Yeah. We're fucked. You know, what are we going to do? Um, and then had a really amazing um, conversation between the panel and the audience around all of the things that are happening because so much action is being taken and and the overwhelming feedback from the audience after the event and the participants because it goes both ways like the panelists themselves also need hope we all need hope um was one of being uplifted and and a, a real sense of relief that to see so much good work being done by good people yeah. and and so you know that's a real focus of our work now is shining a light on the good work that is being done everywhere to um, to give people hope but also to inspire them to take action themselves. Kelly Eakin is our last guest talking about councils and cities adapting to climate change She's talking tonight about Mexico City. Mexico City is a really complicated case for managing climatic risk because it is located in an area that is really prone to flooding. Um, and it was a closed basin uh, for many, many, many uh centuries until we actually the the Mexico City government opened the basin to kind of drain uh, water out of it but of course this permitted more growth um, because the area was now more viable for for urban growth and that of course increases the population density in the area and because flooding has continued uh, with increasing rainfall intensity um, the region is is still incredibly vulnerable Um, and particular neighborhoods in the city are uh, more vulnerable than others and those tend to be areas where infrastructure is particularly poor. Uh, You've described Mexico City as 
there's a city built on five lakes and there's now the problem of subsidence as people suck up the drown- groundwater. Um, so for the city planners, this is a big problem. They have to prevent flood damage to their citizens. But how does it work out? What, is, what are the obstructions in their thinking? You've been talking about changing their mindset. Well, I think um, for centuries, Mexico City has solved its flooding and its water scarcity problems through infrastructure and fairly innovative engineering solutions, and they've been celebrated as being so. Um, the The problem is, is that many of the drivers of the risk are not um, purely technical. They're actually quite social in nature. And one of the issues, for example, is the fact that um, there is a large number of, a large proportion of the population is living living in areas that are particularly uh, not apt for urbanization. Um, And these are people who've come to the city uh, for economic opportunity um, and have found the city unaffordable. There's no public housing really accessible within the city limits. Um, So they're settling in areas that are highly prone to flooding, uh, that are on the watershed, so they're actually inhibiting groundwater infiltration because of the urbanization in those areas. Uh, Often it's in uh, conservation zones, so they're not even supposed to be there. It's uh, an area that's uh, illegal for settlement, but they don't really have any choice. Um, And I think one of the problems for city planners is that they're in this conundrum that if they take action and try to prevent settlement in those areas and thus protect populations from risk, um, but also try to enhance groundwater infiltration and protect the watershed, um, they are also going to be confronting a lot of political opposition because yeah. these populations are uh, don't have a lot of future otherwise, and so they don't have anywhere else to go. Um, so the, often the decision is to just let you know let sleeping dogs lie and and not address the problem. The problem then becomes. These are communities that suffer the consequences. They're quite resilient communities in the sense that they've figured out ways to manage risk. They've raised their houses so that they don't get their property flooded. Um, they stay at home and wait for water trucks to come to deliver water to them. They've, they've figured out ways to make ends meet, but at pretty significant expense. So these are very impoverished households. So a great proportion of their budget is being allocated towards managing risk. Yeah. And that's preventing them from investing in other things like education or, you know, their own economic security. And so we're kind of having a trade-off between resilience at the cost of resilience is their own kind of more generic human well-being in a sense. Um, And that doesn't seem to be quite fair. Uh, (laughs) No, the equity issue is is huge and I think you're motivated by climate knowledge as I am and all the people at this conference are. We know it. But around the world these mega cities are becoming more the norm as people flee from the countryside and will with climate change flee more from the drought drought infected countryside for example and cities like this will grow so we have to think about planning you talked about something i thought was interesting um about how information is ignored and you were talking you showed us a map of florida for example and you just said there well they, the governor there you put some quotes up just it's either climate denial or not wanting to face it how do you get around that you know i i find this everywhere that experts are ignored scientific experts planning experts are they using the wrong language or what why is it that they're so we don't ignore our doctors i think it's um partly in the science community we may be a little naive to think that um because good 
information is available, that it will automatically be used. Mm. Um, and so if what we're trying to do is really understand the decision context. Um, and if we can understand that the priorities for a particular uh, decision maker may be economic growth or maybe um you know, appeasing a particular constituency, um, or, you know, or that there's a political sensitivity around the use of particular language. Um, we need to be cognizant of that fact yeah. and working with it rather than just kind of throwing our information at the problem and hoping that somehow it'll get through. Um, that's some, you know easier said than done. Um, so one of the things that we've been trying to do, for example, in in the case of Mexico City, is really trying to understand. Okay, well, if if the the real engine of the problem problem is uh, lack of available uh, or appropriate housing uh, rather than uh, inappropriate risk management, um, we need to start bringing the conversation into the sector of urban development rather than focusing only on the disaster risk management as the kind of actors who are important for this problem. Um, And then I think one of the things that we have to think about is how does ignoring this issue of risk affect their objectives, whether that's economic growth or attracting international investment or whatever that yeah. that real salient concern is for them. And if we can demonstrate that not bringing this knowledge to the table or ignoring this information is really going to affect those objectives over time, um, that maybe we can then open a conversation of what else can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what our hope is. Um, but we first need to understand what's important to those decision makers and how are they making decisions and really why without judgment Um, and then and then work with that well I think this is valuable because you're at a university level and I presume your students in sustainability studies are going out in working in all sorts of departments planning and all sorts of places but they need this multi-disciplinary knowledge don't they how to communicate how to understand where the other one's coming from what else would you say to people coming up into this field now who, who who want to be effective I think the most important thing is empathy. Um, we, as we've become more and more politicized in, in this debate about climate change, sometimes we lack that empathy. The urgency for action, the frustration of the lack of action, I think, um, sometimes impedes communication. And it taking a step back, really listening, and trying to understand why decisions are being made in the way they are, um, what is the role of environmental risk in those decisions, if at all, and if not, why not? Um, and, you know, that may be because of shorter time horizons, because yeah. if you're really poor, you're only thinking about tomorrow, you're not really thinking about three decades from now. Um, if you're in politics, you're only thinking about the next election. Exactly, exactly. But if we understand that, that's a better way to try and position the opportunity for knowledge. You wouldn't want to put a really important study out during an election season where that's not a convenient piece of information. It's not going to have an impact. It's going to be ignored. Thanks tonight to our guests, Lynn Saville, Peter Lane, Greg Clancy, Danielle Wheeler, Amanda Kotlash, the Mayor of Bellingen, and John Levitt. They were in the councillors' conversation. Also to Michelle English from Adelaide Council, Nina Keith and Hayley Eakin from Arizona State University. Thanks for the music to Yarimul Marika and Shane Howard. Thanks to the team, Roger, Andy and my name is Vivian Langford. Stay tuned to 3CR and join us next Monday at 5pm for the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show.
Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.